Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Welcome to another episode of Common Sense with Dr. Ben Carson. I'm your host, Ben Carson. And I've got a guest today who epitomizes common sense. He's a very successful entrepreneur, has run for president of the United States, and is working very hard on preserving our country. I want to welcome to the podcast Vivek Ramaswamy. Thank you for joining us today. Dr. Carson, good to talk to you. You know, at long last, we've been looking forward to this. So let's uh, let's have a good conversation. Well, you know, you, you're a tremendous uh, inspiration to a lot of people because you're so articulate. But more than that, you're logical. You make sense. And uh, you posted uh, not too long ago some principles that you believe in that uh, you would hope anyone who expected your support to believe in. Uh, what, what were those what were those principles and why are they so important? Yeah, look, I, I think that, first of all, I love the title of the podcast, Common Sense, because it speaks to a shared set of values that I think most of us hold in common. But if you also even go back to our revolutionary roots, Thomas Paine's original work that started the American Revolution was called Common Sense. One of the things I did during my presidential campaign, and I know that you know what that's all about, having been through it yourself, we created these pamphlets called Truth on the front, but it was modeled exactly on the visual format that Thomas Paine used 250 years ago. And I think we live in this 1776 kind of moment today where it is those basic common ideals that are on the table right now. So the principles that I've espoused, for example, what I call the American Truth Pledge that I've advanced after my campaign to say that I'm supporting candidates across the country, black or white, it doesn't matter to me, man or woman, I don't care. Do you espouse the basic ideals that this nation was founded on, including the idea that the people we elect to run the government should actually be the ones who run the government, not the shadow government in the bureaucracy that runs the show today? It's not a Democrat idea or Republican idea. It's a basic American idea of common sense. The people who we elect to run the government should be the ones who actually run the government that the first and sole moral duty of U.S. leaders is to U.S. citizens, period. Not to the citizens of a different country, but the citizens of this country. Again, that's not a partisan idea. It's, a, it's an idea that's 
founded, goes to the heart of what this country was founded on back to George Washington. The first and sole moral duty is to us, to our own citizens. So there's a list of those that's, that's, that, that, that are common sense principles that embody what I stand for. Well, you know, the founders put together some pretty good, uh, you know, they looked at every government that ever existed. They were eclectics and they kind of yes. pulled good stuff and left the bad stuff out and put together something that was pretty uh, admirable. But yeah, yeah. needless to a, say, <laughs> we have a situation now where we have to wonder, how do we enforce the principles? I mean, the Supreme Court, for instance, uh, you know, said that the vaccine mandates were unconstitutional. They said that, uh, you know, forgiving the student loan that was unconstitutional and the administration does it anyway. I mean, how, how do we actually enforce what is supposed to be done? Yeah, so I think a lot of what's happening isn't even coming top down from the U.S. president. Take that first principle, right? The people we elect to run the government should be the ones who run the government. That's not the case today. Today, the people who wield the levers of power, and, and I know that you know this well, as well as those who have seen it firsthand, it's really the three-letter agencies. It's bureaucrats, not even the people at the cabinet-level appointments, but even at layers beneath them that set the policy of the country. And so I think part of what we're missing, and it's part of why, like you, I'm focused on making sure that we do have the right chief executive. I think for the next four years, that's going to be Donald Trump, who exercises the appropriate executive authority vested in the U.S. president by Article Two of the Constitution of the United States. And I think that's something we've been missing, certainly in the last four years. But even if you look for most of the last several decades, the idea of the president being the one who actually runs the show has been more often than not not the case. It's actually been the bureaucracy underneath that gets away with sidestepping what the Constitution demands. And so you gave yeah. two, two examples of that. But we see that every day from our foreign policy to our domestic policy to education policy. And I think that once we restore that accountability, that agree or not, I mean, you know, it's the person who's elected in Congress or in the Senate or even the presidency may not be the one that people like you and I agree with, but at least let's start with this. At least the ones who we elect are the ones who actually set policy, not the shadow government in that deep state. Once well, we know, fix that, the rest becomes much easier. It's interesting that there are 4 million employees in the executive branch of government. President only gets to change 3,000 of them when he comes in, so that's a drop in the bucket. And these people have been there for 20, 30, 40. There were even people at HUD had been there for 50 years. Unbelievable. They know, they know how to slow walk things. They know how to speed things up. And uh, that's, a, that's an issue that we're going to have to find a, a way to deal with. You've got some ideals on how we shed some of those 4 million people, don't you? I do. And I think that you're right. I mean, the way you pointed that out was eye-opening to most people, that of the 4 million, it's only a few thousand that technically the president can individually fire. And so, you know, I think that there are some, some steps taken in motion, even towards the end of the first Trump term of Schedule F expansions that said that few thousand could be a lot more than just those few thousand. And I think those are steps in the right direction. But I think we got to take a bigger leap forward than that, which is to read the current law very carefully, which says that, yes, the president cannot individually fire those individual bureaucrats. The whole idea is that you wanted to prevent fear of political retaliation. But here's what the president can do under current law. 
is mass firings, large indiscriminate layoffs. And so what I think we need, Dr. Carson, is we need about a 75% reduction across the board in the number of federal bureaucrats. Not to say that I'm picking on you or you because you're a bad person or you did a bad job. It's mm -hmm. that of those 4 million, we need fewer than 1 million right now. And those large indiscriminate layoffs, bringing an ax, the chainsaw, not the chisel, that's actually something the president is allowed to do right now, even under current law. He can't pick and choose which of those 3 million, but if you just say 3 million out the door and it's done as a mass indiscriminate layoff, even in stages, that is something that's permissible under current law. I think some of these agencies need to outright be shut down. You take the Department of Education. I don't think yeah. we need a federal Department of Education. Shut it down. Take the Nuclear Regulatory Commission that's been an impediment to nuclear energy in this country. Well, I think that other parts of the federal government can handle nuclear safety in a way that the Nuclear Regulatory Commission is not. Shut that and, down. So those are examples of how I would do it. And what about the idea of maybe decentralizing some of the agencies and spreading them out yes. in other parts of the country? I love that idea for two reasons. One is, first of all, it makes the people, at least who work in those agencies, more accountable to the people. Right. So I'm talking to you from Ohio. I spent I know you spent a lot of time there some number of years ago in Iowa. The Department of Agriculture could easily sit in one of these states rather than Washington, D.C. I mean, the agency you ran, certainly HUD, I, I think that although in that one you put it in the inner city of D.C., maybe you see part of what you're working on. But there's a lot of these other agencies that could be more accountable to the people. But one of the reasons I love moving agencies out of Washington, D.C., is that that's also one of the way of implementing these mass layoffs while even avoiding the severance costs of it, to be honest with you. Because if you tell people they have to move, a lot of those people won't even move from DC. That's an automatic downsizing in much of that employee base right there. And so the Department of State, Department of Treasury, fine. Those stay in DC. But most of those agencies don't need to be in DC. I think they can actually create a greater sense of accountability and cohesion with the rest of the country. And the downsizing and the number of staff that work there goes naturally right along with that. So I think that's a great idea. And I think it's one we hopefully will will be acting on as a country soon. Well, there's a good chance you'll be running one of those agencies. So we'll see what happens. There. I love your I'd love your experience to hear your experience. Right. Because I think you have seen I mean, to say, someone like you, who's a brilliant surgeon going in with with a lot of common sense to see a place where common sense may be in, in demand. I'm sure I'd have a ton to learn from you from what that experience was all about. But it was, uh, it was challenging sometimes with some of the difficult people uh, who yeah. felt entitled uh, to their positions. Uh, the only way to get rid of them sometimes was to tell them, we're going to promote you. And we need <laughs> you to uh, work on um, multifamily igloos. <laughs> something it's, in Alaska. So backwards you know, to get someone out of a position, the, the, the feigned promotion is the way you do it. And so I, I just want to change that basic rail system. Right. Yeah. And I think if we can come agency wide across the entire federal bureaucracy of ways of massively, not a little bit, but massively downsizing the scope of that federal bureaucratic headcount. I think that's one of the most important ways we actually get our country back. It's a great idea. Now, what about uh, term limits? How do you think we can get those? Because the Congress has the vote on their own term limits. That seems pretty unlikely. Huh? Yeah. So I'll give you two <laughs> answers there. One is let's focus on the kinds of term limits that we do need that we can get even without Congress acting. That's term limits in the bureaucracy. So I think most positions in the federal bureaucracy should be subject to the same term limit as the U.S. president. After all, if there's one executive branch, the U.S. president leads that executive branch, 
The U.S. president can only be the president for eight years. Okay, mm -hmm. period. That's just how it works. Two terms. I mean, in the most extreme scenarios, it's actually 10 years if somebody serves, but whatever it is, let's say eight years. I think that if you're working in that federal bureaucracy, learn it, reporting into that U.S. president, you shouldn't be able to occupy your position for more than eight years either, at least for most positions. That's the kind of term limit the next president can implement without asking Congress for permission or for forgiveness. And it actually helps effectively make sure that we bring fresh lifeblood into the government and into Washington, D.C. So that's one type of term limit. Then we go to a different type of term limit, which is the one for Congress and the Senate. And there we run into this obstacle that you correctly point out. It's a little bit of a chicken and egg problem we have going on here, which is that on one hand, the term limit has to be passed by the very people you're trying to term limit out. How do you do that? Think about common sense. Here's one of the ideas I have to hopefully work around this. I think we can, which is use those perverse incentives in our favor. Effectively strike the deal. Here's what the term limits are going to be. Three terms for congressmen, two terms for the U.S. Senate. And let's throw some other things in there, too. Say that, you know what, you can't trade stocks while you're in Congress or while you're a bureaucrat. You can't be a lobbyist for at least 10 years after you leave that government. That whole package of things that you would think congressmen would never vote for, term limits, that are against their own interest. But then as the final sweetener, the deal I think we could do is to tell them, and if you agree to this, those don't apply to you, actually. You're going to grandfather in the people who are already in there who vote for that policy. But anybody who comes after them is bound by those same rules. I think in that case, this would immediately get through because these are wildly popular policies. Oh, and the yeah. only reason they're not passing is because it's against the self-interest of the people who are there. And so thinking about it, the way I think in the business world, as you know, my background's not in politics, it's in, it's in the world of business. What is one of the things you learn is use people's incentives in your favor. And so yeah. as broken as that is, that's how we use those incentives in our favor to say, all right, as dirty as this is, it doesn't apply to you. But anybody who comes after you, who wins an election against you, or if you retire out of your seat, from then onward, those term limits and restrictions on trading and restrictions on lobbying apply mm -hmm. then. And that's how we fix this country in the long that's run. That's a very unique idea. Man. It makes a lot of sense. Uh, we have to take a one minute break. We'll be right back with the day promise moment. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. We're back once again with common sense. Uh, I want to ask you a 
question. You you had an incredible uh, business career. You're obviously very smart. Why would you go into politics? What mm. what made you decide to make that turn? For me, it was a sense of duty to this country, actually. I mean, the choices I made coming out of my education were to win through the system of American capitalism. I didn't grow up in wealth. I know, I know you didn't either, but it's like so many Americans who have lived the American dream, I've lived the full arc of that American dream. My dad was facing layoffs at the GE plant in Evendale, Ohio. He had to go to night school for four years. I used to sit in the back of the class when he was going to those law classes. He got a law degree while he was in the middle of his career going to night school to be able to keep the job at GE amidst their layoffs. That made me, I would say, ambitious to succeed through capitalism. Who was this Jack Welch guy laying off two thirds of the people at my dad's plant? Well, tell me about what that path looks like. And so I got in the world of business and you know, everybody has their chip on their shoulder and whatever it is from their upbringing. And you know, in some ways, some of the challenges we faced growing up gave me my chip on my shoulder, you could say. But that's what I was focused on. And, and I don't think anybody should have to apologize for their success in this country. I think we should be proud of it. But at the same time, you know, I think that now I'm in a phase of my life saying that though I've won through the system of American capitalism and, and achieved success in the American dream, there's more to this country than just the individual side of it. And part of our duty as citizens is to do what we can to pass that country on to our kids and their generation. And I'm worried that that country where I live that American dream, where people like you live that American dream, that isn't going to be available to our kids and their generation unless we step up and actually do something about it. And so for me, it was a sense of gratitude to this country, actually. I think it's probably much the same for you. Is It's a sense Absolutely. of duty and gratitude. No question. Speaking of uh, the future, why is it that you think that young people, uh, people in your generation and even younger, don't seem to be that concerned about the accumulating national debt? It will have an enormous impact on the quality of their lives. Do they just not understand that? Yeah, I think that, I don't know that I think it's that they don't understand it. It's more that they're more concerned with what's staring them in the face. I mean, a lot of young people, I think, have been disillusioned and jaded where, you know, they've been told for years, you go get that college debt and get a head start on the American dream. Go become a gender studies major in California and somehow that's going to give you a head start. It didn't work out that way and they're saddled with debt. They were told things about the war in Iraq that didn't turn out to be true. Many of their peers went and go died fighting those wars, fighting for other people. That accumulated a lot of our national debt, too. So I think that it's become this feeling of jadedness. It's almost a sense of cynicism to say that, OK, yeah, we've been lied to for a long time. Now we have this debt. Well, thank you very much. That's a theoretical abstract concept. But right now I'm ready to hear about what affects my life and makes it better right now. And so one of the things I'm looking at is, and I think we as a movement should be looking at is, how do we deliver solutions to the national debt that actually grow that economy at the same time, rather than first going to, what are we taking away from you, right? Mm -hmm. So if you go to young people who have been lied to from the war in Iraq to the 2008 bailouts, to a four-year college degree, getting them a head start, which they didn't have a chance to enjoy, and then say, oh, by the way, You'll be the first generation that doesn't collect Social Security and Medicare benefits that are still being deducted from your paycheck, which, by the way, is pretty paltry for most people. People don't respond well to that. But if we take a different approach to say, you know what, here's how we're going to pay down our national debt. We're not going to fight foreign wars that don't advance our interest. Seven trillion of that $33 trillion national debt today 
is owed to those two wars in just Iraq and Afghanistan that didn't advance our interests. So we won't make those same mistakes again. And then we're going to have an instant problem that at least makes this manageable. And I'll tell you one way we can make this manageable. Get the oil and natural gas out from underneath our ground and then sell it and buy down about $8 trillion of our national debt that way. Absolutely. That, I think, is actually appealing because that brings down, that addresses inflation, increases supply of energy, delivers economic growth, and addresses the national debt. And if you bring the national debt down by 50%, yeah, that's, that's a solution. And it hurts Putin also. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, it does. Uh, and, 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 and I mean, it helps we're, us. we're funding his war. Of course. I mean, Putin would not have invaded Ukraine had it not been for the fact that we had shot our own selves in the foot when it comes to domestic energy production in the United States. And so energy security is economic security, but energy security is national security. And so I think that the more we focus on what are we going to do to grow the pie and actually deliver prosperity while fighting the national debt, rather than falling into the trap that I think some Republicans fall into, which is just talking about what are we going to take away from you? I think the more productive the next step in fighting our national debt is going to be. Well, you know, it's encouraging listening to uh, people like yourself because uh, our country is going to need very bright people who think out of the box. And it's sad to say that thinking logically is thinking out of the box. Yeah. (laughs) But the box has become very constricted and uh, doesn't really point us in the right direction anymore. But I want to ask you about uh, ESG, Hmm. DEI, and all these things that seem to be infiltrating every aspect of our society. You know, recently the Glass-Lewis recommended that the stockholders vote against me because I'm the chairman of the nominating governance committee of uh, a Fortune 500 company. And we dropped from 33% women to 25% women when we added a couple of people. So now I'm a bad person. But of course, how, how stupid is that? Because if they voted against me, then they got a problem with their minority representation. <laughs> <laughs> the never ending game, yeah. Playing with the numbers instead of playing with what needs to be done for the viability of the company. That's right. And I think that we got to get beyond this identitarian obsession. And each of us is an individual, an Asian, not just the product of our genetics or gender or our skin color. And I think part of what this ESG movement has done, in this case, it's the S prong of ESG. So it's environmental, social and governance factors. But the S refers to social is to take that toxic divisive and anti-meritocratic ideology and import that into corporate America's boardrooms, where you'll you'll know this well, if it's a public company, for example, that you had experience with, most public companies in America today are owned by large index fund managers, BlackRock, State Street, Vanguard, and so on, who are using the money of everyday citizens, probably, probably people watching this conversation right now, to vote for policies in corporate America's boardrooms that most Americans don't agree with, climate change, emissions caps, racial equity audits, et cetera, but also which don't advance their best financial interests. A company isn't better off if it's constrained in who they can hire for the job. They're not better off as an oil company if they have to limit their emissions when Chinese companies aren't doing the same thing. And so that's actually what's on the line is capitalism itself is corrupted when the people who are the asset managers looking after other people's money aren't actually looking to maximize value for those shareholders. And so one of the things I did, this is before I ran for president, is I founded a company called Strive. 
And I'm a big believer in driving solutions through the private sector and through the market wherever possible. But when I founded Strive, the sole goal was to create an alternative that said, you know what, to everyday citizens across this country, if your money's being invested in public companies, vote for policies that advance your interests financially. What maximizes profit, what allows companies to be most successful rather than advancing somebody's environmental or social goal. And Strive crossed over a billion dollars in assets under management in the first year after launching its first fund. That's twice as fast almost as it took JP Morgan or others to get to the same place. And so that shows that there's a hunger out there in this country for alternatives. But part of the change we have to drive is not just through government, it's through that private sector as well. Absolutely. We have to take another quick break. We'll be right back with the big round of smiling. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low- and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back with our last segment here. Uh, boy, we could talk to this man forever. <laughs> He's got so much common sense uh, to be so young. Of course, I used to hear that when I was young, too. But uh, it's going to help us. And uh, there's hope for our country, I do believe. But I want to ask you, uh, you talk about the nation of victims yeah. and the victim mentality which is really a problem because if you think you're a victim, you are one. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we hear so often about the wealth gap, for instance, uh, between black families and white families in this country. And it exists. There is a wealth gap. But interestingly enough, if you look at Nigerian families, Ghanaian families, and people from some other uh, countries where population is predominantly black, there's no wealth gap. But if you go into a Nigerian home in this country, what do you find? A bachelor's degree is the baseline. That's where you start. Mm -hmm. And a tremendous emphasis on family. Same thing with Ghanaians. And here's what's interesting. If you take traditional Black American families who have those values, family and education, there's no wealth gap either. Could we be looking at the wrong thing when we're looking at skin color? I think we're looking at the wrong thing and you nailed it. You said that more 
succinctly than I ever have, which is that imagine if you sort of take, even just take the fatherlessness issue. I mean, you could take education, family values, but let's just take one metric, fatherlessness. If you don't have a father in the household, you're eight times more likely to end up in prison. You're 10 times more likely not to graduate from high school, et cetera. So that's, that's true whether you're black, brown, Asian, or white. Then you just look at, okay, are there disparities amongst different communities in the rates of fatherlessness? Yes, there are, but that's what explains the difference in actual undesirable results. And so go to the root cause, address that in a way that helps people of every skin color, white, black, brown, and everything in between. And so that's what we need to have the courage to do is to speak that hard truth. Now, the irony here is that the likes of Lyndon Johnson, right, President Johnson, through the so-called Great Society, the greatest misnomer for a policy right. proposal that I've heard in my, that we've probably seen in modern American politics, probably in history, said in the name of helping black Americans or whatever, we're gonna adopt policies that actually didn't help them at all. Paying mm -hmm. single mothers more money not to have a man in the house than to have a man in the house. Pay people more money to stay at home instead of to go to work. That's not just bad for them economically. It's bad psychologically, it's bad mentally. If you lose your sense of self-worth, and dignity, part of which you get through hard work, then you actually think of yourself as worth less. Then reinforce that with an educational system or a military or an institution that tells you, you can't achieve anything you ever want because the color of your skin limits you. I can't think of something more toxic to tell a kid today than you can't achieve something because the color of your skin. That's a new form of psychological slavery in this country. And you said it well, I mean, if you think of yourself as a victim, then you are one. Absolutely. And that's no what we need to declare, emancipate ourselves from today. Well, we're going to be wrapping up in a minute here, but I want to ask you something that a lot of people have had in their mind. That is about Hinduism. Does Hindu theology and Christian theology align? Deeply common values. Absolutely. In fact, John Adams, when he left the White House, he actually, in his famous letters to Thomas Jefferson, became something of a Hindu scholar and a Sanskrit scholar. And there was extensive reflections even from him to Thomas Jefferson on this, dating back to you know not too many years after our own founding, after those two guys were out of office. So I'll tell you the heart of, of my faith, and it's a little bit different than you know exactly what the Christian faith is, but grounded in the same values. There's one true God. He puts us here for a purpose. He works through us. It is not being done by us. It is being done through us. But we are all still equal. Even though God works through us in different ways, we're still equal because God resides in each of us. Similar to saying, because we're each made in the image of God. And I have some understanding of this because I went to Christian schools and I read the Bible for the first time in ninth grade. And I can tell you when I read those 10 commandments, right? There's one true God. Don't take his name in vain. Observe the Sabbath. Honor your parents. That was a big one in my upbringing, too. Don't kill. Don't lie. Don't cheat. Don't steal. Don't commit adultery. Don't covet. Those are the same values that undergird the, the Hindu upbringing that I had in this country. And the beauty of our foundational values, the Judeo-Christian values that America was founded on, is they actually reach people of faith even beyond just the traditional Judeo-Christian background, but those are the values that the country was founded on. And, Amen. And, and even Thomas Paine, whose namesake of common sense we're, we're honoring maybe today, or Thomas Jefferson, they had slightly non-traditional beliefs from the traditional Christian view, but they knew 
that those were still the Judeo-Christian values that the country needed to be founded on. As John Adams said, our constitution was made for a moral people. Right. And I think that that's a value that I share deeply and want to revive in this country as well. And as we've thrown those values away, look what's happening. <laughs> we need to bring exactly. them back. Exactly. Last question. What gives you hope? What gives me hope is actually the last year of traveling this country, not meeting people through TV screens and social media and, and media, but actually, I mean, you did this as well. You know what this is like. Tens of thousands of people in the flesh, in rooms, without any TV screens in between. And what I think I've understood is just even relating to that last question you asked me, I think most of us in this country, 80 plus percent of us, certainly, share those same values in common. And I didn't just go to Republican events in Iowa. I went from the south side of Chicago to Kensington in the inner city of Philadelphia to Flint, Michigan, places that aren't necessarily traditional places that Republicans would go in a primary. And what I saw in this country is a group of people who forget the labels, black or white or even Democrat or Republican, who share the same foundational values in common, but who need to be given permission to actually state their views in public. And the more we're able to do that, I think the more we realize that even though you or I might disagree with our neighbor on, I don't know what the tax rate should be or whatever the issue of the day is, we share the same founding values that this nation was built on, that the people we elect to run the government should run the government, that you get to speak your mind freely as long as I get to in return, that you get ahead in this country, not on the color of your skin, but on the content of your character and your contributions. Yes. What gives me hope is I saw over that last year that most of us in this country share those values in common. And as long as we start speaking our minds openly again, not self-censoring, not saying one thing at the dinner table, but another in public. You know, say the same thing at the dinner table that you'll say at public and vice versa. I think we're going to get this country back, overcome that culture well, of fear, and I'm hopeful for it. Well, what gives me hope is people like you. And uh, I've been to a number of universities lately. We'll have a, several more on the schedule. And seeing a lot of young people waking up and not just accepting the propaganda that's been giving them and yep. studying and knowing who we are and what our values are. And uh, if we can get people to be courageous, that's really the key because you can't be the land of the free if you're not the home of the brave. I you certainly that. are brave and you have uh, been out there suffering the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune and you're gonna be around for a long time and gonna play a big part in what happens to this country. I just wanna thank you for doing that. Thank you, Dr. Carson. The honor was mine. As I was mentioned to you before, my wife met you years ago when she was a student and you were an esteemed surgeon. And you're one of the people who apparently she told me actually she met you and your wife in person and she went on to become a surgeon herself. And so that's an example of you giving inspiration to what was once young people, too. And so I'm, I'm honored to, to be talking to you. And I know you're going to do your part. I'm going to do mine. And and that's how we're going to get our country back is every one of us Amen. do what's asked of us. So thank you. Well, God bless you, and thanks for being a patriot. And we'll be back with my final thought in one moment. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. 
conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with BiteClear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. BiteClear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Okay, I hope you enjoyed that uh, fascinating conversation with Vivek Ramaswamy, a dynamic young person who really has a tremendous amount of common sense. And I find a lot of common sense in young people all around this country. So I have great hope for our future. But I want you all to remember how important it is to stand up for what you believe in. Because... People who think logically like to know that there are other people who are with them. And when you're just silent, they don't know whether you're with them or not. And that sometimes dampens their enthusiasm for fighting some of the Marxist tendencies that are starting to invade our country. We need to support each other and we need to be respectful of everybody. And that's it for this week. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Make sure you rate us, review us, tell your friends about us. You can get uh, the podcast on uh, Apple Podcasts for free. Uh, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. We have a whole bunch of them now. You can sit there and listen for many days and uh, be inspired by the common sense. Help spread that common sense. And remember, the cornerstone principles of faith liberty, community, and life. See you next week.